0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market moving news.
0: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. After a record setting 2020, investors are sitting back here on this January 4th and saying, okay, now, what do I do in 2021? Our next guest uh, has some thoughts, I am sure. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of the Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes, uh, joins us here. Phil, thanks so much for joining us once again. Boy, you are spot on with the bullish call in 2020. What say you now as we start 2021.
2: Well, um, Happy New Year, by the way, Paul. Thanks for having me back on. So the the piece, my year-end focus piece that I wrote just before Christmas was entitled, It's Always Darkest Just Before Dawn. And, and that would suggest that 2021 is going to be a pretty good year. Our forecast for the S&P last year was 3,800. We got close to that, about 3,750. And we think we could get up to about the 4,500 level over the course of calendar uh, 2021. But, but two of the key fundamental issues that we're focused on is the coronavirus and the vaccine, and sort of issue number one. And issue two is, is divided government. And I, I got to tell you that over the course of the last couple of weeks, the vaccine distribution um, has not been as smooth, has not been as widespread, I think, as a lot of people thought. And that's got to raise some questions. And um, while and on, on the, the Georgia runoffs tomorrow, while the, the two Republican candidates look like they were in pretty good shape a couple of weeks ago, uh, the polls this morning would suggest that the Democrats have, have caught up, and uh, they appear to be uh, in the lead right now. And, you know, all right, the, the polls have been horrific over the last four or five years, so how much faith can you put in them? But what it tells us is that we've got a couple of coin flip elections tomorrow, which could have a significant bearing on government.
1: Exactly. What would it look like in either scenario? What would be the things that would impact markets most in terms of legislation under either scenario?
2: Well, I I think if, if, if this morning's polls hold, let's say the D's win both of those seats, therefore they gain control of the government. And what we can expect out of an incoming Biden administration then is probably higher taxes and, and, and more spending and more stimulus and, and more infrastructure. And, and so I think we're likely to see a sugar high uh, over the course of calendar 21 in terms of all of those things. But there'll probably be a price to pay somewhere down the cycle. And, and maybe that that price to pay is in calendar 22 Um, the the issue with regard to the coronavirus is you know are we going to be able to pick up the pace and, and get to a run rate of, say, 25 million vaccinations a month, which was our estimate. And, and frankly, we thought we would be conservative. But the healthcare experts were assuring us that we were going to be able to you know, vaccinate 50 million people a month. We cut that number in half just to be conservative. And, and again, based upon the expectations and the, uh, what's happened over the last couple of weeks, maybe 25 million a month is way too optimistic. So, Phil, if I
0: made a mistake in 2020 as it relates to the markets, maybe it was just that I was overthinking things. Maybe all I need to know is rates are low and they're going to stay low. Therefore, I buy stocks. Is that still not the call?
2: It's absolutely the call. This is a TINA scenario. There is no alternative. If you've got benchmark 10-year treasury sitting at 1%, which is basically where we are, um uh, theoretically the the multiple you should be willing to pay on forward earnings for stocks has got to be at least 25 times earnings um so that there's uh th- there's no other place to be in terms of either getting yield or capital appreciation potential in the equity market given a low inflation low interest rate environment
1: phil what do you imagine will happen with inflation this year? There is the theme in the market now that mm. it will rise a little bit, the 10-year inflation break even back up beyond 2%, which hasn't happened since November 2018.
2: Inflation absolutely is going higher. But but let me just say that that Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve, they're going to church on Sunday lighting candles, praying that inflation goes higher. <laughs> so we We went from a 2% run rate on core pce a year ago we bottomed out sub one percent we're in the process of getting that back we think we'll be back to you know the two percent level by the end of this year that's exactly where the federal reserve needs to see it wants to see it they're praying to see it we need to have some inflation in the economy we're not talking about hyperinflation two percent two and a quarter two and a half percent this is exactly what the fed wants and exactly what the market needs to see
0: so, Phil, I guess the question real quickly, 30 seconds, the rotation trade, are you in all in on that rotation trade into cyclicals and small caps yeah, and
2: things like that? We're, we're still there. Uh, okay. International, uh, large cap values, small caps, they've outperformed the broad market over the last three or four months. We think that trend continues over the course of twenty-one.
1: Well, Phil Orlando, always a pleasure to speak with you, particularly the first trading day of 2021. We look for lots more themes to come throughout the year. Who knows what's going to happen? Certainly, we weren't expecting last year's (laughs) rollout as it happened. And uh, there we got it. We got plenty of news last year. Phil Orlando of Federated Hermes, thank you so much for joining
0: On Saturday, President Trump had an interesting phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, and Ryan Germany, Raffensperger's general counsel, in the president's continuing efforts to influence the election in that state. Let's take a listen to part of that discussion.
3: So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 Votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. So, so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to re-examine it, and you can re-examine it, but but re-examine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers.
0: That was President Trump on a phone call Saturday with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and Ryan Jeremy Raffensperger's General Counsel. To help us parse what this all means, we welcome Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, uh, joining us from Montclair, New Jersey. Tim, there's been so many odd twists and turns to the last four years. Help us put into context the meaning and the significance of the phone call yesterday between the president and the uh, officials in Georgia.
4: Uh, Happy New Year, Paul. Um, You know, I think this is more than just a twist or a turn. I think we've now got a recording of the president of the United States trying to corrupt two state officials and convince them um, that uh, partaking in a a political coup is a necessary thing because the president feels that he was treated unfairly. It's an hour-long call, but a You know, a a, a large dose of it is 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 the president ranting about these myths and fairy tales of election fraud uh, and trying to convince two Georgia officials to buy into that lie Uh, to their credit. Neither one of them do. And they both push back against him. But I think the larger takeaway from this as well as what does this mean about presidential authority, the sanctity of democracy, and uh, the election process, and and what will the Republican Party do uh, in its future posture around what we're seeing as a core element of Trumpism, which is uh, ignoring the rule of law and, and a willingness to undermine democracy.
1: And the rhetoric is incredible, isn't it, Tim? The way he expresses himself, it's quite clear what he is looking for. You know, he says, I only need 11,000 votes, fellows, I need 11,000 votes. And this idea of people who want to find answers, not those who don't want to find answers. But he won't come out and, and say exactly what he wants in clear language. Why? Is it that that might be criminal?
4: Well, I think he's pretty clear about what he says here, funny. You know, at one point in the phone call, he says... What are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes, fellas. I need 11,000 votes. And then he goes on to essentially threaten them uh, with criminal charges if they don't support his claims. So I, I don't think there's anything murky about what he's doing here. I also think it's entirely consistent with his career. You know, as a developer and a casino magnet, <clears throat> he routinely threatened browbeat, tried to buy off and corrupt regulators, politicians, competitors, law enforcement authorities. Uh, We know that he got impeached for trying to convince Ukraine's president to dig up dirt on Joe Biden, also in a phone call Uh, that was, I don't think, uh, murky at all either. So I think this is all very consistent with who Trump is. I don't think that he engages in this kind of activity should surprise people. I think what should surprise us is what does it mean about uh, how easily he corrupts people around him and how well do American institutions and processes that we all care about, I think, for nonpartisan, non-ideological reasons because they're the bedrocks of our society. How much can those get eroded by this kind of behavior? Tim, has the... First of all, is there any...
0: Do you think there's any exposure here for the president from this phone call, legally?
4: There certainly is. I mean, there's, you know, trying to meddle in either a federal or a state election uh, is are both federal and state crimes. <clears throat> and they're punishable by prison terms. Um, but there, there's a very difficult uh, evidentiary hurdle you have to overcome there. You really have to prove, clearly prove intent. And... Um, you know, that, that's, a, that's always a hard standard for prosecutors to overcome. Uh, I think uh, it would be very hard in this case for them uh, to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's no question that there's a lot of traction here should someone choose to pursue criminal charges against the president.
1: Tim, Trump also tweeting this morning that he'll be at the D.C. March, January 6th. Any concerns for, you know, what might happen this week in D.C. and beyond?
4: Well, again, I think this is, this is consistent with what we were talking about. Uh, January 6th is a significant day because that's the day that Congress certifies um, the Electoral College results in the, in the presidential election. And Trump has been encouraging his supporters to march on the streets of Washington. Uh, there's a chance that... Uh, you know, peaceful protests could turn into riots. And uh, and again, it it, it shows a, a willingness to try to torch the Democratic Party or rather the Democratic process because Trump can't face losing and he wants to soothe his own feelings.
0: Tim, you know Donald Trump better than probably anyone in the media, uh, given your access to him when you wrote your biography. What do you expect Donald Trump to do in the weeks and months after January twentieth, will he go down to Mar a Lago and simply work on his golf game, or do you expect him to maintain a high profile?
4: Uh, he'll do both, Paul. I think he'll <laughs> he'll go down and play his golf game and watch sports and 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 relax because that's what he does most of the time already i think in addition he's going to try to maintain a presence in the media i suspect he'll try to buy or start a media company i don't know that he'll able be able to run it particularly well but there'll be a lot of energy around that in the early stages i also think he's going to try to continue to throw sand into the machinery of joe biden's administration and into um fissures he's already created within the republican party
1: and make no mistake about it, I mean, you know, he's,
4: uh,
1: millions and millions of people out there would subscribe to a Trump channel, right? And that would, you know, keep the momentum going and, and possibly keep him in the public eye until the, the next go-round.
4: That's, that's very possible, Bonnie, But, you know, as, as we all know, in this business, you can come out of the gate strong with a new media product. But maintaining people's interest over time requires a lot of hard work and talent uh, it's It's easier said than done, and um, he's not a good manager. I, I would imagine Jared Kushner would run an enterprise like that for him, but Jared Kushner hasn't proved himself to be a, a particularly good manager either. Um, but there's no question that that I think it'll be easy for him to get funding and a lot of initial excitement around something like that.
1: Briefly, Tim, we're out of time, but I'm curious as to what you think will happen in Georgia. I mean, obviously, COVID striking there as well, Purdue not being able to be on the trail for the last few days.
4: Well, I, you know, it's, I, think, I, I think it's hard to say. I think, I think it's gonna, it, it, it could be very hard uh, for both Democrats, I think, to win there. Uh, I think they face long odds, but um, it's going to be an interesting result to
1: watch. For sure, and we'll be covering it right here on Bloomberg Radio over the next couple of days. Tim O'Brien, Bloomberg Opinion Senior Columnist. Thank you for joining us. latest column, Trump, phone call is what coup fever looks like well the opec plus monthly meeting is underway saudi arabia made some opening statements and so far not too many surprises russia looking to increase production which was anticipated but may not get its way let's bring in somebody who knows all about this and what impact it will have on the oil markets mike mcglone is commodity strategist for bloomberg intelligence so where are we with OPEC supply and what will happen this month
3: Hi, Vani. OPEC is basically um, fighting a losing battle. The key, sometimes you get these ringing bells in markets, and the fact that they said that they're going to go on week, uh, monthly meetings sounds is indicative of the big problem of a cartel. A cartel is just duty is to limit supply. They're having a hard time doing that and keeping prices up, and they need money. So I view crude oil as a bear market that's simply resuming. It made an all-time low last year, but now it's at, you know, WTI near 50 is more likely to go towards 40 and very unlikely to get to near 60, particularly if we see continued uh, increasing uh, volatility in the stock market. So OPEC's doing the best they can in a very challenging environment. And key thing to remember, crude oil was in a bear market before the pandemic.
0: All right. So, Mike, give us a sense of where Russia is these days, because I always just feel like from a supply perspective, they're the, you know, kind of the wild card.
3: Yeah, well, Russia is a wild card. And just like every other country in the world, dependent on energy production, they need money. And there's only going to be so long they'll be able to last. I mean, they've cut supply a lot, but I view it as OPEC is a big part of it. Right, you know, a WTI near 50 is the old 60 for shale. They're getting back to supply coming on. And the key thing is, globally, is that incremental elastic demand that we remember from kids, is this not happening anymore? It just does not happen. And it's particularly not happening with EVs and the trend towards decarbonization and then of course we have this little issue with people not driving to work anymore.
1: Right, exactly, and uh, you know, coronavirus impacting everything from the supply chain to the amount of workers and so on, what countries are going to be in trouble if oil demand doesn't recover more?
3: Well you mentioned the key ones, and I think this is a key issue we need to look forward to. If you're a US intelligence agency, look at... Saudi Arabia, potential for civil unrest in a lot of the OPEC countries because they're just not going to be able to meet and look at the debt downgrading. Potentially Russia, maybe less so, but that is key radar. I think you should expect that in the future is these countries, dependent on this revenue, they're not getting it anymore and subsidize their countries. Big issues. And I just don't see it coming back. And key thing to remember is time decay is working against crude oil bull market. Because what are we doing with the technology, but it's working for a bull market in metals, gold, silver, platinum, palladium kind of things.
0: So what, so Mike, I mean, the reopening trade is certainly driving equity valuations. And for a long time, it seemed like they were correlated with uh, oil as well. But you think the equity or, or the reopening trade is not as big a driver for the oil markets?
3: Um, it isn't because there's just been a permanent paradigm shift in work from home. And you sense that even in our office. I mean, 5% of our 100 people who are still in BR are coming back, yet more people should. They're just not. I think it's been somewhat permanent. And the key thing is I like to point out is incremental demand for liquid fuel in this country was actually in decline, and all the reversion estimates were in decline on a global scale before the pandemic. So to me, this has accelerated that process. So as a commodity guy, I just cannot get bullish yep. crude oil. I look over to metals and maybe eggs and then things like Bitcoin, where you have limited supply oh, and more right. demand. Well, Here that's we the
1: thing. How <laughs> can you have oil in a bear market and something like Bitcoin you know, just rallying and continuing continuing to rally. As you said, it got over $34,000 a coin at the weekend. It's now above $31,000.
3: Well, we can go to Bitcoin as much as possible, but we just transition from oil. Oil and copper have a high correlation historically. That's breaking down now. Oil is well supplied, copper is not. And then going to Bitcoin, just like gold, it has limited the supply. But the key thing I think about Bitcoin is that historic example of a number of Man, major people and institutions in the world allocating the gold and holding gold and knowing it's a store of value, they know now that Bitcoin, they have to probably hold some Bitcoin too, but Bitcoin is the new digital version of gold in an increasingly digital world. Now, right now, yes, it's a little bit overdone, Put put ourselves a year or two ahead, ahead. If this NASDAQ technology doesn't fail, which it's not going to and less likely than it was a year ago, the price has to continue, is more likely to continue to advance, probably more so than gold. Which brings me to, you know, kind
0: of a Bitcoin question here. I don't have any, or we don't have as investors, much historical uh, data to look at to get a sense of where are we in terms of relative value, you know, say, you know, gold, I can always look back 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years. I don't have that with Bitcoin. So all I have now for my Bitcoin call is limited supply, rising demand. That's
3: it. And I'd like to go there, Paul, because I think that's the right way to start is, People keep claiming Bitcoin's a store of value, and I'd say, not yet. It's not yet, it's too young, but it's getting there. So one way to look at it is um, market cap of Bitcoin is around just below 600 billion. Um, That's, you know, compared to gold, which is around um, one, maybe 10, 11 trillion. So it can double this year, and it's still a small portion of of the big space. And to me, that's what's happening. It's becoming, it's getting into the space uh, and another way to look at it is, let's look at volatility. Bitcoin volatility, 260-day basis, which is annualized, is the lowest ever versus gold, versus stock market, and versus the oil, which means this Nasdaq space is gaining that robustness and oomph to be part of the main uh, mainstream.
0: Mike McGlone, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, trying to make, you know put Bitcoin into some perspective, and it's very difficult for a lot of investors just seeing this thing continue to move ever higher. Mike McGlone, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Somehow we let him get out of the room without talking about pork bellies, but we'll do that next time. Bitcoin seems to be what's of interest to most people now, Vani. And it's just extraordinary. You look at that uh, one-year chart on the performer or, or the multi-year chart of, of Bitcoin. It's just extraordinary, straight up.
1: Yes, we'll have to see, uh, you know, how far this can, can, can run, Paul.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. And, uh, you know, Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge, who will be coming on our show tomorrow, they're actually starting a, a Bitcoin uh, fund. So that'll be interesting to discuss as well.
1: Well, let's get the very latest now on the virus, where we are with it, where we are with the new strain, and where we are with vaccination. Michelle Cortez is medical science and tech reporter here at Bloomberg and is always on top of things. Michelle, I want to start with the new variant of COVID-19. So it was detected for the first time last week in the United States. It's now in three states that we know of, Colorado, California, and Florida. But a terrifying thing is something that one of the doctors you talked to said to you, and that is Quote It's a function of if you look for it, you will find it. It is the case that the U.S. doesn't actually test the strains of COVID that people have, it just tests for COVID. Is that changing? That is changing. The CDC has said that it's going to
5: start ramping up its testing capacity for genetic sequencing of the coronavirus strain here. They want to be doing at least 750 of these tests a week. Realize that this is a process that the U.S. can do. We do test our influenza strains. It's just that there are so many pieces happening at once when it comes to coronavirus that this hasn't been the priority. And Bonnie, if you think about it, we have one case in Colorado, one case in California, one case in Florida. Yeah. None of them traveled none of them touched each other so we know it's we know it's widespread across the united states right one on the east one in the west one in the middle of the country so it's here yeah
0: so michelle what do we know about this strain as it relates to transmissibility uh maybe the way it's treated and most importantly i guess uh the efficacy of the vaccine on this strain
5: Right. Well, there's good news here and bad news. We'll start with the good news, which is that there is all indications that the vaccines that we have will be effective against this strain. The other piece of good news is that it doesn't seem to be more severe or more deadly if you pick up this particular variant. The issue is that it's much more transmissible. So what that means is that even keeping the same level of severity when you're going to hit more people, because it's easier to spread, you will ultimately have more hospitalizations and deaths. And that's the piece that we wanna get on top of. The other thing is, is that the reason that the vaccination will work is because when you vaccinate someone, you, you flare up their entire immune system and you have many antibodies that are working against the virus. Some of the therapeutics that we have are monoclonal antibodies. They only use one or two or three antibodies to go after the virus. And if there has been a mutation on that particular piece, some of those monoclonal antibodies might not work. There's still research underway to see if that's in fact the case. And then the most problematic, the most potentially terrifying piece of this is that when we see the mutations happening, you can be get a mutation on top of a mutation, and that's what the scientists are really worried about here. We're opening up the the virus itself. We have a new mutation; it's more transmissible. If that version mutates again, because all viruses mutate constantly to become more severe, that's the piece that we're worried about. So it's a building block, you know, one on top of another. We have now had one building block fall. If another mutation happens on top of that variant, that's where we could really get in trouble.
1: That's terrifying. Michelle, in the UK we're seeing cases top 50,000 a day now again. The You know, Cabinet is in crisis and it looks like in a speech today at 3 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. London time, it looks like Boris Johnson will announce new coronavirus restrictions, possibly even a third national lockdown. Certainly in Scotland, the First Minister appeared to anticipate that move and she is implementing a lockdown from midnight tonight. Is that in the US's future? There is definitely some indications that the U.S. is going
5: to have to take action in order to stop the spread of this variant. We know that it came out first in the U.K., or at least it was widely spreading there. So we can look to the U.K. to see what's going to happen here. In the United States, a very different country, obviously, than the U.K., although more similar to the U.K. than to China, which just locked everything down right out of the gate. In the U.S., we've really had a lot of resistance against doing this and we've allowed uh, governors and mayors to make the decisions for their own localities so will there be a nationwide lockdown will president-elect Biden actually enact that once he comes into the presidency I don't know if he could even do that right we've already seen Americans not abiding by other kind of rules don't go to a party on New Year's Eve with 30,000 of your closest friends wear a mask, you know, there's we've struggled to do that sort of thing. But in terms of governors and mayors, certainly we're going to be seeing more of that coming our way. And the bottom line is, is that people are going to have to actually do some of this social distancing much more aggressively in order to slow the spread of this virus, or we're just going to have rising deaths and hospitalizations.
0: Michelle, let's pivot to the vaccines frustration that they're not getting uh, into people's arms uh, as quickly as we would have initially hoped. I guess one of the questions is, even if a batch of vaccines gets delivered to a state or to a locality or to a hospital, the percentage actually getting into people's arms is shockingly low. And I think that's what's surprising people. What do we know?
5: Well, there is a host of things that are happening here, right? The issue is is that this is a very complicated process and it involves in every single case an individual who has to take an action. When it comes to doing something like inventing a test, inventing a vaccine, that type of a thing, you have a small number of people, you know, maybe maybe a few hundred or a few thousand, but it's, it's concentrated. When you're trying to vaccinate the entire country, you're going to have to have everyone in the entire country on board. And as we've already just discussed, that's not happening in the United States. So we're, we're struggling with actually getting people to sign up. We know that there are some nursing homes where only a tiny fraction, you know, 12%, 15%, 20% of the staff members at some of these locations are signing up to get immunized. So the hesitancy is there. Not only that, just the actual process. When you have people signing up and they don't appear for their, for their vaccine shots, should you have people lining up? Should you have people waiting in their cars? That process isn't fully in place yet. And I think that because so many things have gone so well when it comes to combating coronavirus, when it comes to, for example, the benefits of this vaccine, so much stronger than anyone expected, people haven't really been anticipating hurdles. But the truth is, is that this is a massive public health undertaking and it's going to take a couple of days to get it going. And that's what Dr. Fauci was talking about this weekend when he was saying we can already see that things are getting better. And when you look at next week and the week after, things will be better still.
1: Well, given what you said, I guess uh, the faster, the better, right, Paul?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully, you know, this is some initial stumbling blocks so we can pick up the momentum. Michelle Cortez, thank you so much for joining us. As always, uh, Michelle is a senior health science and medical technology reporter for Bloomberg News joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. And again, uh, Vani, I guess, you know, even Mayor De Blasio uh, here uh, in New York City uh, says that uh, beginning this week, uh, vaccines will really ramp up uh, and will so will do so throughout the month.
1: Yes, this as New York reports today, 170 new deaths and 11,209 new cases. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn.
0: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide
4: at Bloomberg Radio.